no, this isn't as bad as some of the absolute worst of Star Trek. I can think of worse Star Trek than this. But I was really debating this, and believe it or not, this is actually my second take. And not because of mic issues or anything like that. Because even as I had started talking, normally my process is, you know, I, I finish the video. And I'm usually sitting here in uniform, just ready to go. So I finish watching the episode right here at my computer. I've got my Blu-ray drive right there. Um, hit close. Fire this up. I've usually already got it set up to record in the right area. And I'm just, plunk, and I hit record immediately. Like, less than a minute between the episode and me hitting record, right? That's very normal for me. Um, so I did that. But there was a problem I was still debating. And I wanted to get some feedback from other people. But ultimately, uh, no one was available for me to get feedback with. None of my viewers who cared about Star Trek were on. And the two of my friends who cared about Star Trek, who I talked to regularly, were not available. So I started talking it out, and I just started chatting with the camera, so to speak, debating my options and whatnot. And finally I just hit stop and was like, all right, hang on. And so I took a few minutes and really debated. And yes, I think this deserves a lamentation. This is not the worst of Star Trek, of course. There is worse than this. But <laughs> that's getting into the realm of really defining the specifics of bad. I've discovered over the years that there's so many different types of bad, and it gets hard to qualify worst. Worse is okay, but worst, when we get to that point, it gets difficult. I could easily say that Code of Honor is worse than this episode. That's easy. Um, but I look at this episode and I see nothing redeeming about it. The episode was ultimately just kind of dull, right up until the 13 minute and 26 second mark. And then the episode nosedived in quality. And then the episode introduced a C-plot, technically a B-plot, since we've already had the C-plot concluded at this point. And then the episode just kind of meandered in irrelevanceville. And then just, oh, and then it's over. This episode actually pissed me off, in addition to the fact that it was not enjoyable to watch, and the fact that there are so many flaws with it in its construction. And you know the best part? This episode was written by Melinda Snodgrass. Yes, that Melissa Snodgrass. The writer of, let's see, The High Ground, which is an episode I remember loving. Um... Ensigns of Command, again, another one we haven't gotten to yet, but I remember loving that one. And Measure of a Man, one of my favorite episodes. She also wrote Pen Pals, kind of. That one had a rewrite, so I'm kind of willing to get that, that, give that to her. But this one, this one, eh. the only comment I've been able to find, and it's from an interview of hers, she mentioned that there were severe budget restraints and time constrictions, and so she was forced to follow the path that was put forward to her by Maurice Hurley. But the problem is this is still just kind of not a good episode, in my opinion. Now, before I go further into that, now that I've dropped the gauntlet, so to speak, I would be very interested to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Like, what do you think? I, I, I'm predicting right now that most of you will be like, ah, you're just being too harsh. It's not that bad. And that's totally valid. In retrospect, with memory, I never would have picked this episode to be Lamentation Status, just like I never would have picked uh, Move Along Home to be Lamentation Status. But going back through it and really combing through the episode, good lord. It's something I've found as a part of doing this job over the years, is that my enjoyment of fiction really only does one of two things when it comes to really going in and analyzing a work. It either goes down because the flaws are made more apparent, or it goes up because the details and quality are made more apparent. One of the two. One of the two happen. And this is the former. One of the things that Melissa Snodgrass admitted was that the original intent was for this episode to be an allegory for the current U.S. policy on refugees. Oh, there's a topic I don't want to talk about. That's already, already come up over on DS9. Uh, by the time you're seeing this, that would have gone live. The episode... Live, the episode uh, gosh, I can't think of the name of it. It's the one with the people who are trying to migrate to Bejor and some stuff happens and then they don't. You know, it's... <laughs> refugees is actually an interesting topic because it's probably one of the most convoluted and 
no good answer topics that I can think of off the top of my head that, that faces a real world society. And it's strange that Star Trek, which usually does have a pretty good track record of hitting, you know, difficult, uh, topics, barely discusses this particular one. Now you may, might be like, hang on, I've seen this episode, Lore. What about this has to do with refugees? Well, nothing. <laughs> the entire allegory was completely ejected out the window. Again, by Snodgrass's admission, thanks to the aforementioned issues. One allegory was left in, though, and that's abortion. Man, I can't wait to talk about that on the internet. That is such a wonderful idea. Let's get back to the episode. So, did you know Ron Jones did the music in this episode? I could tell. I, I can, he has a very distinct style by the teaser. Right at the beginning, there's this incredibly suspenseful, tense music, as if they're going to a very suspenseful situation, or one of the crew has just been replaced by shape-changer xenomorph or something, right? And then they cut away to Riker and Picard, who go into the meeting room, and talk about this SOS. Couple questions. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna a little gonna get a little bit more nitpicky than I usually do, because I feel like some of these nits are not nits. <laughs> to explain what I mean by that, <clears throat> if I point out, I'm gonna make up an example. If I point out that, well, hang on, you you sh you know in in the this, the the confines of this setting. A, you know, uh, a violet mage, I'll use my own setting, a violet mage can't be learned. So you have just said that Bob over there has learned to be a violet mage. Therefore, that's a huge plot hole. That's not a nitpick, because that's a big deal, which is a big plot and setting-altering thing that you're just tossing away. It is effectively a plot hole, not nitpicking. Nitpicking is more like, <clears throat> well, actually, you only hit the, the up button on, on that particular... Uh, that lance, that maglancer, three times in order to get to the, the setting, which should have actually been five touches of the button. And so that mistake, that's more like a nitpick. At least that's the way my mind tends to think. But we're going to go a little bit further below the big ones because I feel like they really add to the overall negative construction of this episode. Bringing me to my next point. Why do they sit there and deduce what's going on with this SOS signal right there in Captain Picard's ready room? Please explain that to me. If you don't understand why I'm weirded out by this, let's, let's watch the construction of events. Picard has just had a briefing with a starbase. This starbase has received this signal. It's been broadcasting for over a month. Remember that point for later. And this month-long broadcast, which they've probably only recently started getting because slower than fast light travel, I, or, you know, slower than warp speed communications. That makes sense. I'm not going to argue about that. But they've been analyzing this. It took them some time, by Picard's own admission, to figure out this was an SOS signal at all, which Riker was able to identify like that, which is already kind of, okay, maybe if it was data, I could see that, but Riker? Then... The starbase, having discovered this, basically says, hey, nearest starship, here. And apparently did no work whatsoever in figuring out anything about this. Instead, they have to do the work of, okay, might be, you know, they, they open up the records and see any ships launched from this area, and maybe we can figure out its point of origin, and maybe we can figure out when they launched, and blah, 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 right? And then Data, of course, comes up with the actual solution, finding out the records keeping for the loading the ships, which... I gotta be honest, if records were destroyed in general, I don't think those records would have survived anyways, but moving along, moving along. My point is, why was none of that research work done by the Starbase? It is instead done by Riker and Picard in Picard's ready room. Now I know what you're going to say, budget issues, to which I have to respond to a couple of things. Uh, first of all, this episode has to go to the, uh, the cargo bay, which is a set that they have used before but not particularly often, and has to be set up in a particular way for this, contains a lot of guest stars, even though most of them don't talk, and several guest stars who do actually have lines, and an on-set location with the cloning facility, and the addition of the pigs and the props to, to compensate them. That's a lot of money being blown at things for an episode that apparently had budget issues. I only point this out because those kind of things could have been written out before they were ever conceptualized. This, is, this doesn't quite make sense to me, is what I'm trying to say. They were like, oh, well, I had to, you know, the, the script had to be altered because of budget and time and restrictive issues. Okay. 
why didn't you get rid of some of these elements that would have removed them from adding expense to the construction of the episode? That's a thing you have power to do. You're the writer. <laughs> Anyways. So then they discuss it, and then Worf collapses. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, my God. Medical emergency on the bridge. Dun, 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 dun. It's okay. He's got nothing. That'll be solved before the first act is over. Seriously. I've talked before. In fact, I believe I talked just last week. Uh, this was actually yesterday, but my uh, real-life perspective here. Uh, and my mind's a little full of Star Trek right now, so I can't remember when I did what, but I know I have recently talked about how much I hate the Star Trek dun-dun-dun problem that it does to lead to uh, cut to black. In this case, in the teaser, which is even worse, because that's basically flat-out lying at that point. The teaser ends... Let's put yourself in... What is this, 1989, I think, at this point? Something like that. 87? I don't remember when this is. Um, put yourself in 1980-whatever. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. Don't tell me. <laughs> put yourself in your shoes in 1989. I was right. The 22nd of May, 1989. Okay? Put yourself there. Now, picture for a moment that this episode has come up. What do we know from just the teaser? There's some ancient SOS from an older thing. Okay, that's interesting. One of the things that Star Trek has teased but never really gone fully into detail on is that turbulent, turbulent point of turmoil in Earth history. It's something that's been discussed as, rec as, as recently, as originally, as in the original series. That's a bad word construction. It's something that's been around for a while is what I'm trying to say. It was even mentioned in Space Seed, for example, you know, a, a violent and turbulent period of your history, and they don't have full records of what's going on in that part of, part of history because it was so violent and devastating to humanity as a culture, as a society, as a civilization. So automatically, any Star Trek fan is like, ooh. And then Worf collapses. <gasps> oh my gosh, what's happening? So obviously we've got our A and B plots established. But what instead we have is the A and B plots established in the SOS call, the Worf plot is actually a C plot. So he's got measles. Klingon measles. Now that happens. Whatever. And then the doctor covers for him. Now, I don't quite understand that. And I know that sounds strange. But what I mean by this is doctor-patient confidentiality is a thing in real life. Except under very specific circumstances. And Star Trek has shown many times that doctor-patient confidentiality is a thing. Pulaski could literally have just said... It's not an issue. Don't worry. Just a fainting, a little bit of blood loss problem. Uh, he was undergoing a Klingon fasting, which, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, she could have just been very blasé about it, and then Worf would have been like, thank you. There's no need for Worf to come and thank her personally, per se, because that's what she's supposed to do. Now, I'm not complaining about that. I'm just pointing out that I found it weird that the episode seems to not understand what doctor-patient confidentiality is, because that's not brought up once. Just a throwaway line would have been nice with Pulaski saying, I would never give away, you know, the, confident, the confidence of my patient. You just have to say something like that. Just slide that in there. And then it's like, ah, okay. Makes perfect sense. And then Worf brings over the tea, which is a nice little touch, actually, and I'll even admit that. Um, little bit of an insight into Klingon culture. Not really anything new for us. You know, pain, here, drink poisonous tea. She takes an antidote thing. They have wild sex, whatever. So let's go to the next step. <clears throat> They talk about the anti-tech people. Now, as I believe I discussed in the DS9 episode Paradise, that was a while ago from my perspective, so forgive me, there's nothing inherently wrong with that ideology. Not really. Um, it is it, the, the thing that pissed me off about Paradise was the dictatorship of brutal oppression, not the anti-technology stint. Although she was also a massive hypocrite, but you know, whatever. Point being, it makes perfect sense to me that in the incredibly hyper-advanced technological state that this Federation is held, that the galaxy is, in the 24th century, uh, that they... 24th century, right? Is it 24th or 23rd? God, I suddenly can't remember. Hang on, hang on. It's okay, I've still got this thing up here. Oh, it's not going to tell me this. It's just going to tell me the start date. No, yep, no, no, I'm right. 2365, so 24th century. That there would be people who would want to try and avoid hyper-technology. I mean, yeah, they'll still use technology, but bringing it down a few steps makes sense, right? However, that brings up my next question. We learned that a whole bunch of ships were sent out to colonize the galaxy. How far away is this place that they went to? Because ships back then didn't really have particularly fast drives, and the Enterprise is usually pretty far out towards the periphery. Um, I mean, 
<laughs> right? I suppose it's possible they were relatively nearby. Remember, they were at a starbase just last episode. But at the same time, I really do wonder how far away this colony is. Because the world builder in me looks at this and thinks, okay, you had a ship. Inexplicably, this one ship was filled with people who were trying to be simpler and people who were trying to be very technological. Like, they, they actually mentioned we have, you know, spinning wheels and chickens and goats and also cloning vats and tech and all that. So a bunch of scientists and a bunch of anti-techs in one ship. Okay, it sounds like a teen romance comedy so far. And then the ship goes for X number of time before disaster happens and the ship ends up going to two separate, uh, the two separate colonies, which are half a light year from each other. Which is probably the only part of it, this that makes perfect sense, you know, I mean, because they really should be relatively close. And even half a light year at low warp speeds is a pretty decent distance. But what led to the construction of this series of events is kind of what I'm asking. Like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to let it go. Because then they talk about the stellar flares, which will kill everyone there in hours. In hours! That SOS was detected over a month ago. You remember that, right? How did they detect the, S the, the stellar flares? How did they know they were going to be a problem? In addition to this, since they have no communications equipment whatsoever and don't really know what beaming computers or replicators are, how exactly did they send this distress call? The closest fan theory I have ever heard to help to explain this is that the half a light year away colony sent the distress call for their sister colony, despite the fact that there's literally nothing in the episode to, to imply that in any way, shape, or form. Remember, the tech colony, the clone colony, they're fine. I mean, they've got the cloning issue, but they're fine. Whereas the bunch of hillbillies, I shouldn't call them that, uh, the low-techs, let's just call them the low-techs. They actually have a name that's the Blingori or something like that, but I don't care right now. Uh, the low-techs have imminent destruction within hours of total devastation. Apparently these solar, solar flares are going to actually engulf and attach, connect, physically connect to the planet. I'm not even going to go into the nitpick of how exactly a star could be hours from that level of solar activity and not already have devastated all life on the planet. Let's just ignore that one. What really bothers me, again, because that, that's kind of more nitpick range, but what really bugs me is the distress call. Remember, pretty much the entire episode hinges on that distress call. They never would have found the low-tech colony. They never would have even thought to look for the cloning colony if not for that distress call. Where the hell did it come from? Did Q send it? Hmm, you know, I'm still kind of pissed at Picard for all those insults he sent my way. I think I'll send him after a bunch of dirt farmers. Can you tell this episode pissed me off? <sighs> Poor O'Brien. Up to this point in time, up to the 13 minute and 26 second mark, the episode was just empty. Kinda boring, kinda absent anything good, with a couple of weird plot issues. Then at that exact moment, they beam up the people and the, the music starts... And O'Brien is just like, oh my god, really? Keep in mind that the actor who plays O'Brien, which I'm going to, for those of you who haven't heard this announcement yet, I'm just going to call him that from now on because I'm tired of people arguing over the name pronunciation. I've heard equally enough, enough people in real life and on YouTube, on YouTube, on the comments, saying that it's pronounced one and the other way, so I'm, I'm just giving up. <laughs> I have great respect for the man, but until I hear him say how he wants it pronounced, I'm just going to keep sticking with... O'Brien. So, O'Brien, you can just see what's going through his mind. Remember, this is the same actor who was actually pissed off at the Rumpelstiltskin thing over on, uh, it was actually a Leprechaun thing originally, over on DS9 in the weird episode whose name I forget. It was early season one. I wonder what was going through his mind as he did that. Because remember, at this point in time, the actor who plays O'Brien was not exactly, oh, I could just call him Mr. Meany, that's true. Mr. Meany was not exactly, uh, he didn't have a lot of clout or sway. He was a recurring guest star. He's been on a lot of episodes. And there's a reason they keep him back. Everyone likes him. But he doesn't have, like, the weight of, say, Patrick Stewart, who can just say, I'm not doing this. Baklong, you know. 
It wouldn't be until DS9 that he had some actual say in his character. Which is funny, given the crap he goes through over there, but I digress. So then we see the A plot kind of continue for a bit. So first we see Patrick Mc... Actually, we need to talk about something for a second. I've had some people ask me why these people are such stereotypes. The answer is simple. No, it really is. First of all, uh, this again, this is intended to be a uh, allegory for refugees and their rights and their approach and the policies and the immense complexity of that issue. However, Maurice Hurley le- latched onto the idea of Irish tinkerers, and that just kind of became the script. Problem is, if you're not actually someone who is either versed in second-hand familiar with, or actually are a member of a particular culture, there is a 90% chance if you try to write someone from that culture, it will come across as a stereotype. Because you don't know that culture. You don't know the depth of it, or the presentation of it. All you can do is present what you know, which is probably stereotypical stuff. Some of which may be accurate, and some of which probably isn't. So, she wrote Irish Tinkerers, having no idea of how to really do that. However, there is another theory, and it's worth noting we don't know 100%, but the other theory I've heard is that Maurice Hurley himself wrote this section of the plot, and considering he himself is Irish, and actually performs in the Irish Parade and all that fun stuff, and has the whole Irish pride thing going on, that's just funny. So, and by the way, I'm not trying to say that this should be super offensive. Whether it is or not, that's up to you. I'm just irritated because it's not good. Which brings me to my next point. So, Patrick Mc... whatever his name is, meets Picard and he says, Oh, you're the captain of the ship. This is wonderful. Um, are you married? Would you marry my daughter? I'm barely exaggerating. Within a minute of meeting this man, he tries to marry his daughter off to him. Then, these people who barely understand what a computer is are sent to the cargo bay after having been beamed there. That's got to be a wonderful experience. And when they get there, no one on board the entire Enterprise decides to tell them, this is a food dispenser. You, t- you walk up to it, you hit this button, you say what you want. No one, it occurred to no one to do this. In fact, actually, and I rewatched some of these scenes to verify, I don't think a single member of, of Starfleet personnel, a single member of the crew, was actually present in that cargo bay overseeing or supervising anything. I remind you, this is 236, I want to say. I forget the exact number. 200 plus people who don't know what a computer is, who have just been picked up on a, on a galaxy class cruiser and are simultaneously scared and distraught at having to basically having to leave their home because they were going to frickin' die otherwise. And no one is there? This is one of those situations where having a ship's counselor would be incredibly valuable. Having Troy down there helping them would make perfect sense. But no, Troy's only contribution to this episode is saying, hey, the clone guy is evil. <sighs> so no, Starfleet is incompetent and decides not to take care of these people. So they start a fire. The first time they find out about this fire is the security alert for a fire. Oh, credit where credit is due. I like the idea of a security alert for a fire. Like just notifying the security chief wherever they are. That makes sense, actually. I would think the security chief would want to know about such an occurrence because something had really, really wrong has gone on a starship if a fire has broken out. So, they go down, and then we meet uh, Odonna, I think? Oh, shoot, I can't remember her name. It's okay, I'm, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look everyone's names up. <laughs> Oh, this episode, it's, 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 oh, excuse me, it's Odell, I was getting, it's Brenna Odell, I was getting those two merged there, so Brenna, so then they meet Brenna, who is our main guest star for the episode, and she is the proud, strong Irish woman, get to that in a second, and uh, she's the one, we, we find out very quickly, she's the one actually running the colony, and I'm fine with that, that doesn't bother me at all, um, what kind of bothers me is why she seems to insist that the the actual leader, the Odell Sr., seems to have any say in anything because he's an incompetent boob who has nothing to do with anything. The most he contributes as far as leadership capacity is to agree to the deal at the end of the, the episode. Unilaterally, I might add. 
without consulting anyone. Oh, we'll talk about that too. Don't worry. So we meet her. Um, and <laughs> she starts cleaning the ship, and Riker gives this really weird line. He says, Don't worry, the ship cleans itself. What? I, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I know this is a weird thing to pick up on, but the ship cleans itself? How? Like, I know that sounds like a weird concept. Maybe I'm just a weirdo because I've thought about stuff like this in my own world building, but when you think about what is required to clean something, especially automatically, you are introducing a very dangerous system. Something that can cause incredible damage to someone if it happened to happen on someone or around someone. Hell, I've seen horror stories where cleaning equipment has been used to kill people before. Because cleaning equipment is cleaning equipment, right? I, I don't feel like, I, I feel like I'm explaining this badly. Maybe it's just because I worked as a janitor for so many years, but I look at that idea like, huh? You would trust the ship to clean itself? Also, this is, if I'm not mistaken, the first time we've ever heard of this, and possibly the last. It's just a throwaway line. The ship cleans itself. What? How does it determine what is needing to be cleaned and what isn't? Don't they need that hay? <sighs> Anyways. So then they go to the replicator, and we've got to offer what's-his-face the super mega, you know, Klingon ale. This... <sighs> Earlier in this episode, there is a Klingon tea which is poisonous to humans. That's tea. Now, granted, it's kind of deliberately designed to be that way. But I bring that up because one of the things we learn about Klingons, and this will actually be reinforced later as well, is that their uh, physiology is just stronger than ours. Their immune system, their redundant systems, that's a plot point later, uh, how much damage they're willing to take, their pain tolerance and threshold, all that stuff, right? So you'd think that if a Klingon has to reach the point of inebriation, whatever they're drinking has to be pretty goddamned poisonous. And yet, he goes ahead and just offers a Klingon alcohol to this guy. That's just mind-boggling. However, I do have a headcanon that kind of explains this one little point away. I like to think that Worf just ordered the Klingon equivalent of a wine cooler. Like, the most mildest thing you could possibly think of that still actually has alcohol in it. And said, here you go, try this out. And the guy's like, oh my god, it's super strong. And then Worf's just like, yep, pansy. Because <laughs> that amuses me. <sighs> so, uh, believe it or not, the A-plot's almost done as of this point. It, it, it kind of leaves the stage for a while until the A-plot and the B-plot collide. But I do want to mention one thing. And that's that Riker is a massive hornball. Now, what I find really interesting is Riker's libido hasn't been particularly well established at this point in the show. Later on, Riker will be jokingly referred to as the sex guy on the Enterprise D, you know, the one who is the most promiscuous. And that's not me shaming, and that's not me caring. It's just a statement of fact. He is the one who tends to flirt around and goes to Ryza on a semi-regular basis, right? But as of this point, that hasn't really been established. But I remembered a scene, and I don't think I actually commented on it, where Riker was flirting up with a young woman, and a member of the crew, actually, and basically had to say, hang on, give me a minute, I need to go talk with Wesley, and went over to talk with Wesley. Now, that was a decent scene, but then I realized that was Pen Pals, written by Melissa Snodgrass. Anyways, so Riker hornballs onto her, and then something very strange happens. I don't know, like, I'm not interested in shaming. That's not, that's not the purpose of this. I'm just confused at why she, who presents herself as, you know, obviously as the leader of the colony, is a strong woman, and also is pretty freaking pissed off at everything that's just happened, sees Riker, goes on a tour with him, and then immediately... Well, we don't know what they actually do, but they at least make out, at the very minimum, because we see that on camera. What? Just out of nowhere? Hi, you're, you're attractive. Those are some interesting standards. Given towards the end of the episode, we find out that she is a money grubber, in addition to everything else, maybe she thought he was rich. <sighs> on to the B-plot. 21 minutes and 21 seconds. So after about a eh, little over 
a little over eight minutes, a little under eight minutes, excuse me, seven minutes and 55 seconds later, we get to the other colony B plot. So the other colony is, of course, the tech colony, the clone colony. Uh, Troy has her one line, and these people are very advanced and very sterile and very clean and apparently have no access with the outside world whatsoever. In fact, they, they thought Earth was gone and they were all that's left of humanity. This is stupid for three reasons I can think of right off the top of my head. Reason number one. It, remember, these people cannot, by absolute definition, be that far away from Earth. They, they just can't. This ship launched forever ago, before the Federation of Planets was founded, before Starfleet existed. Well, that's debatable, since the exact date of Starfleet's founding is a matter of debate, since the fleet was around before. But whatever, you get my point. This was a long damn time ago. They didn't have ships that could, went particularly fast back then. And, the, and granted, these are colony ships, so the argument could be made that they're further away. But I think we could say with reasonable certainty that this colony is at least relatively close to Federation borders, if not actively in them. Despite this, and the fact that they have reasonably advanced technology, including the ability to just communicate with view screen without issue, which is modern technology, I remind you, they have never had contact with anybody including the other including any knowledge of the other colony which I remind you is half a light year that way now i know what you're all already thinking well the other colony has no tech other than the sos signal they sent which the tech colony which is half a light year away did not detect <clears throat> but ignoring that massive glaring flaw there's also the fact that the tech colony apparently has been content to just kind of sit here and rot for i don't even know how long i don't feel like doing the math right now a long time no exploration, no nothing. Just sit here and clone each other for a while. The final problem is, of course, that no one else has run into them. Remember, they have tech. You know, scannable from orbit, tech. And communicate to ships in orbit, tech. All it would take is one ship going by and being like, hey, for them to discover the outside world. But anyways, so they find them. I do like, if I can give credit, they do actually go out, I mentioned the guest star problem and the budget issue, they go out and find several uh, twins and triplets for this episode in order to get the effect of the clones. Now that was good. You know, that, funnily enough, clones and triplets tend to have a lot of work in Hollywood for exactly this reason. Even if they don't have a lot of lines, they're very useful for this purpose. Uh, see Terminator 2 for another more high-scale example of this. Anyways, <clears throat> so the clones are there. That's cool. I'm with that. Uh, they, they do the triplets for that. Oh yeah, by the way, they're clones! Da -da -da -da. Super shocking. It's treated as a big revelation. I'm not sure why. Then... Then... <laughs> then the episode, if you could believe it, continues to descend. At least in my opinion. They come up and they reveal this nature of their crisis. Remember, the A-plot crisis is actually over. This, they were beamed up, the sun flares are gone, whatever, we're done. But the B-plot crisis is now introduced. We are, we cannot solve replicative, replicative fading. Now, I have to admit that the Xerox problem is something that's been used in science fiction several times. One thing I have to wonder, as weird as this may sound, is why aren't they using the original sample each time they use a make a clone of themselves? Do they not have the ability to maintain a digital copy of that original sample to produce the biological material? I mean, let me explain what I'm saying a little bit here. And I may be just a massive idiot, but to me, I feel like replicative fading could be solved by always copying the original rather than copying the copy. I don't know, maybe they just decided not to do that for whatever reason? I, eh, anyways, so that's their problem. They're all going to die out. They're walking corpses. So then they say, please give us your DNA, and they say no. This is where the episode really starts to stick its foot in it, because they say no for the dumbest reasons possible. And there are good reasons to do this. I'm not comfortable with having a clone, is a valid reason. Um, I don't think cloning is something that should be done on moralistic or belief purposes. Valid reason. Um, maybe uh, something along the lines of, I don't know, 
maybe I it should be my choice whether or not this clone is made of me, and given the circumstances, I choose no. You know, something simpler like that, a very neutral response. Instead, Riker says, nope, because I am unique and special, and you will diminish me by replicating me. However, in the interest of total tolerance and honesty, I'm willing to at least buy that. But what really pisses me off is Riker says no, which is, which is fine for reasons we'll get to in a second, although I'm about to have the internet hate me because we're getting to the abortion thing. And so Riker says no, and then they don't ask the crew. They have over a thousand people. At the moment, they have over 1,200 people on this ship. And you're telling me that after Riker says no, because of ego, but whatever, it's his right, right? So Riker says no. They refuse to ask anyone else. Ship. This is a ship-to-ship announcement. This is the captain. Uh, any, we have a bit of a dilemma. There are these people on this planet. They need DNA in order to be able to replicate themselves and introduce new genomes into their, in their personnel so that their society will continue. Uh, this is a purely voluntary circumstance, but if anyone feels that they are comfortable with this thought, please, you know, get a hold of me or get a hold of Dr. Pulaski or whatever sometime within the next day and a half or two. And then just kind of hang out and let people decide and debate. Maybe some people go to Troy and talk about it because that's her frickin' job. And then maybe be like, aha! You can't tell me out of 1,200 people that everyone would say no. I'm sure plenty would say no. I mean, I'd probably say no on that one for the, for the uncomfortable reason. I'll admit that. But you can't tell me everyone would say no. And even with the uncomfortable thing, I'd at least consider it for the sake of these people. But no. No, they just, bam, they slam it down because we need bad guys this episode. And so they're like, okay. Well, thanks to the fact that you've damned us to literal extinction, we will have to rob you of your DNA. And that brings up a very interesting point. First of all, they Jordy ousts them all as lying, which I find hysterical, because he doesn't bring this up ever. Like, this barely comes up anywhere else. In fact, Jordy's someone who plays poker with these people. I mean, Jordy's actually been out-bluffed by Riker before. Just point it out. By the same writer, I feel like pointing out. Anyways... So, Jordy's like, yeah, no, they're totally lying. Which was, and I point that out because this isn't quite a nitpick, but it's an unnecessary point. You have introduced a plot hole that will be, that is something that will have to be present in every episode after this, as well as ones before this, and yet, and that's something every writer from now on is going to have to keep in mind. Jordy can detect lying in humans, specifically humans. But no, no, uh, we needed some reason for this to come up, except you don't. Because they were already, like, they had every piece in front of them in order to be suspicious about having the cloning forced from them. Jordy shows up and says, Ah, I couldn't find you. Where were you? Uh, We were going to what's-his-faces, and I don't remember what happened next. I wonder what's going on. Tricorder. Let me see. Aha! You know. You don't need the lying thing in there. So then they discover they've been cloned. Which brings me to my next point. They didn't clone Jordy. Why? They were totally okay with zapping people unconscious and stealing their DNA from their stomach or whatever. I forget the exact word. Uh, and just taking, sending them back. Why didn't they do that with Jordy too? Do they have a no black people thing? No, of course they don't, because there's actually a trio of black gentlemen who co- and confronts them in the very next scene. This is why I wanted to construct this argument in this way. So that's not the issue. Was it his fact that he was blind? Maybe? Possibly? This is never even addressed, and it leaves a huge hole because it's basically there so that they can discover what's going on. Because someone has to be there who wasn't affected, who can then be the outlier and say, hey, this information doesn't line up, and they can discover the truth. So then they go down and discover the truth. And then Riker zaps him dead. Now, that's an interesting thing that happened. Let me go ahead and say that I feel the episode failed on the abortion allegory because it doesn't give us enough information to properly state anything about it. Instead, it's just, here's these two clone people who we have no idea what stage of development they're at, or if they're even people yet or not, they're dead. No thought to the moral dilemma, which is there, by the way. There is a moral dilemma there. No thought to what should be done about this. 
or the consequences of action or the consequences of inaction. Instead, he literally just sees them, pulls out his phaser, and evaporates them as if it was a non-issue. Doesn't ask Pulaski if he wants her to zap her clone either. Just does it himself. There's something weirdly presumptive about that scene, and it's bothered me since I was a kid. I remember Mum sitting next to me being like, oh my god, he killed them. <laughs> then, you know, they, they confront them, and they're like, what the hell? And Riker flat out says a line, which paraphrase is, we have rights over our own bodies. This is the abortion message, that I have the right to abort this clone because it was my body. Now, obviously, that allegory is not one-to-one. However, in the science fiction case of cloning, I actually do agree that someone should have the right to choose whether or not they allow themselves to be cloned. That makes sense to me. It is, as Riker says, his right to his own body. And I have no problem with that. The fact that this was taken against his will is a horrible thing, and something that probably should have been discussed to some extent or another, rather than just... It's no wonder he doesn't shoot Thomas the first second he sees him, but anyways. Um, God. And, you know. So he kills without hesitation. And, I can't remember his name right now, the colony guy, the, the clone leader is like, we were desperate, you left us no choice. And Riker's reaction in outrage is, you have the right to rob us? Well, now, that is an interesting defense, Riker. What do you think, guys? If you are in a desperate situation where you and your people are facing extinction, if you do not take action and you feel forced into a circumstance where you have to rob someone to survive, what do you do? I know what Archer would do. He felt horrible about it, too. That was actually a good episode. I know, right? But no, that was when Enterprise was good. And this is actually a thing that other Star Trek have brought up, has brought up as well. But the other moral dilemma here, the we are forced by desperation to rob, is completely brushed over. And it immediately goes into the final part of the episode, which is just, uh, why? Because the final answer to the episode is turning these people into breeding stock. <sighs> now, I'm a bit of a prude. It's just, just my preference. I, I tend to be a very private person, and I don't want to know about other people's sex lives. That's just my thing. That is my preference, my choice. But <laughs> we have to talk about sex now. Because <sighs> that's what the, the episode ends on. That's what the next topic is. Sex. The way that they talk about Pulaski in specific talks about their their attempts to to you know remove their desire to procreate um, is a very interesting thing to me because what happened is they realized they didn't have a strong enough gene pool to really make a society so they went to cloning. Okay, I'm with you so far. Why did you remove your ability to have sex? There are other ways to be contraceptive. I know the old saying is you just don't do it, you don't have kids. But everyone involved acts as though the only possible reason to ever copulate is because you want to have a child, not for any of the many other reasons that that kind of act can happen. That's my first point. My second point is the breeding stock problem. They flat out state that even if we gave you our DNA, it would just prolong the issue, which is true, but also, is no one else seeing the point here? Let me take a step back here for a moment. Up, too far back, too far back. Let's get closer. (laughs) I need some kind of levity because this episode hurts my brain. These people have a culture that we get no insight into whatsoever, but they have an entire society built up around cloning and clones. Now, at no point does anything in the episode indicate that these people are uh, mere images of each other. And I use that word, too often fiction will use the word clone to mean something that is identical to the original. What I mean by this here, by the mere image statement, is 
clone A and clone B there are separate people with their own personalities, their own perspectives, and their own opinions. They look similar because they came from the same genetic stock. But otherwise, they are separate and distinct individuals. This is not the Borg, right? Ergo, they have this entire society built around this concept. And their culture, their mindset, is going to be destroyed by this act. The biggest argument that is ever leveled is we don't want to give you any of our DNA for whatever reason, but also because that will just prolong the problem. Now, this is going to sound very strange, but so? How many more generations would fresh genetic material add to this colony? Willingly given. Willingly offered from anyone who is willing to do so. Why not have this colony and their distinct culture and their distinct society actually become part of the galactic community? We know they're there now. Enterprise can say, hey, you know, trade can start happening, communication can start happening. They can actually start offering, you know, whatever resources and materials they have. Obviously, they got something. They built a nice little place with nothing. They could actually start trading for new genetic stock, which is a temporary solution that is repeatable. In other words, it's the same thing that most life is. It's, it's kind of like saying, you know, why fuel up your car? It's just going to run out anyways. Yeah, but I could fuel it up later. And I know that's a bad example. But you get my point. Most society, fictional in real life, is developed around the idea that what we do is not a permanent solution. What we do is a temporary solution with degrees of temperance that we have the ability to replicate in the future. The ability to do something about it again and again and again and again. Why is it the only option available is to destroy both of these cultures? damage them irreparably and try to make something new out of them. And I'm saying that very deliberately because both sides seem to be pretty against this overall idea. Now, maybe if they were given time to think about it and given the option of merging into one colony, fine. That's their choice. What if not everyone wanted to? Right? What if some people refused to? Well, that's their choice too. In fact, that option is given to... Christ, I've already forgotten her name. Brenna? Yeah, Brenna. You know, you can just stay on the ship. Of course, she is swayed because one of them is rich. There's this bit where Pulaski, in very cold medical terms, says how each woman will have to have three children by three separate men. Now, she says this in an appropriately cold and sterile manner. Because it's a matter of scientific colonization at that point. Okay. Then it cuts to Picard, who's grinning and hiding it with a hand. What, this is funny? <sighs> Let me explain something, because I feel like Star Trek doesn't quite understand this. In my experience, while Star Trek can actual ha actually handle sexy quite well, and has since the original series, Star Trek does not seem to know what the hell to do with sex. This is a recurring trend. This is, this is not new. The episode consistently portrays this as if sex is this wonderful, great thing that they're just going to love once they get used to it. You know, it's okay. It'll be fine for you. No other alternative is even offered because this is stated as to be the correct, possible thing. And yet, Pulaski's own statement shows part of the hypocrisy in this, in, in this entire concept. They are wishing to turn these people into breeding stock. No emotional connection. No romantic affiliation, no res regard to personal opinion or belief or desire or preference or anything else. Just, you are now a factory in order to produce a colony. Nothing else. And I remind you, while that can be acceptable when people getting into it know what they're doing, which we in real life have people who are aware of that exact thing and are actually working on that problem right now, these people are having this choice forced upon them. And neither of them wants it. The only one who seems positive at all about it is frickin' Adana, or Adana, god, I've already forgotten her name. Uh, <laughs> Brenna is frickin' Brenna because of the rich thing, which, again, I just reemphasize because that's so stupid. Now, I know some of you don't quite get this, so I'm going to lay this out very, very simply. I want you to picture someone even if it's of the gender you happen to prefer, just to make it simple. So I want you to picture someone of whatever gender you prefer who you are disgusted by. 
someone who the thought of actually screwing makes you want to vomit. Just a little bit of little bit in the back, right? It's it's not that hard to do. <laughs> that we are exposed to so many different people through through media and through fiction in real life, and so many actors and so many politicians and so many people just as we're walking down the street or at the grocery stores or whatever. It's not that hard to picture someone like that, is it? Now picture that you've just been told, congratulations, it's your job to screw that person until they or you, whichever, uh, get pregnant. Have fun. You kind of see why this pisses me off so much. The episode treats this as it's a joke. And as if it's the only possible solution when there are so many other demonstrable solutions available. I've already discussed one of them. <laughs> but no, we've got to go screwing to, to the future. <sighs> this episode reminds me of a snowball uh, that's actually made of dung instead of snow. Starts off as little, this little ball, and it's like, okay, that's gross, but whatever. And then it rolls down the hill and rolls down. It just keeps collecting more and more dung until it gets to the bottom. It's just like, oh my god! Because by the end of this episode, I was actually angry, like legitimately infuriated by this. And all's well that ends well. Yay! God, it. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I have nothing else to add. I do want to share one small little tidbit, just for the hell of it. In the in the course of watching this episode, I decided to look into that colonizing thing in real life that I mentioned. Because again, we're working on that problem in real life. And it was determined that under ideal circumstances, which also involve some pre-set-up embryos and whatnot, um, 160 people is the bare minimum population value for, a, for an actual uh, viable population thing. It's also worth noting that with 160 people, there will be genetic discrepancies and there will be people who will have genetic disorders who will probably die off. But it is mathematically determined that they will still be, as long as there is a sufficient level of breeding, which is the key, I know that sounds so cold and clinical, um, that there will still be a viable population base as long as it continues to grow and these uh, outliers basically die out. As long as there's not too much inbreeding going further down the line, in other words. Now... I point that out because there's 200 and some odd people on the one colony, on the anti-tech colony. We don't actually know how many people are on the other colony. We just know that there were five clones. <laughs> just thought I'd point that out. Anyways, I've got nothing else to add. I hope next week is better than this. Just, it's, God, we had Q-Who, which was like, yeah! And then we had Samaritan Snare, and then we had Up the Long Ladder. I, 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 I'm, I'm scared now. I'm going to look. I'm going to look right now on camera. I'm not sure what it is. The next one... Oh, hang on. The next one's going to be Dramatic Pause. Oh, I don't have it written down. I don't have it written down. I don't know the next episode. Oh, I'll look here. I really want to know now. Next episode is... Oh, come on. Manhunt. Which one's... Oh, Manhunt. Right. A Loxana Troy episode. <laughs> I'll see you next time, guys.